Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. There's a cat over here. There's a cat over there. And the wrong one died. And the wrong one died. Welcome to The Wrong Cat Tide, the podcast breakdown of the catastrophe. I'm your host, Mike Abrams, and today we have another amazing guest. She was Victoria on the U.S. National Tour for multiple times. So welcome, Natasha Davison. Thank you for joining me. Well, I am actually delighted to be here and talk about cats. Uh, being in the National Tour 4 um, was a really long time ago, so I haven't <laughs> had the opportunity to discuss it for a while, but it was uh, a really big part of my laugh- life back then, and it was just uh, a great experience for me. I'm going to make you dig back into that vault and think back of a lot of moments that you probably have not reminisced on in a long time, which is what makes this really fun. Hopefully Um, my memory, (laughs) fun intended, is okay. (laughs) So let's start at the very beginning because I I find this, I I always love this question, especially for people that predate the 1998 movie, because almost everybody I talked to that was currently on tour, the most recent tour, it's like, oh, I watched the VHS and I was obsessed with it. But you were on tour before that movie came out. So I always love to hear... What was your first experience with cats? When did you see it first? When did you learn about it? Like, what did you know before tour? Well, you know, it, I was living in Boston at the time. Um, I had always danced and sang and had a really strong uh, background and foundation foundation in dance, you know, as a little girl taking ballet. And uh, But in college, I studied journalism and I uh, went into television journalism and was a um, producer in Boston. At the time, the, uh, that Cats was a you know was a huge hit first in London and then in New York. So I knew about it because I always was a huge fan of musical theater, loved musical theater, always trying to find ways to engage with musical theater. And so I saw the first national tour of Cats uh, in Boston, and that was the first time I saw the show. And I was uh, I just loved it, and of course fell in love with the character that I eventually played. And that was actually about a year before I ended up getting the role. So it was kind of interesting that someone had told me, you know, in a year, you actually will be playing uh, a role in this show. So when you were yeah. watching it that first time, you're a producer. Yes. And you're also, but you also danced growing up. Are, were you watching it from the lens of a performer or from the lens of a producer? Like, did you go in and say, oh, here's how I could do this for that? Or here's how I would love to dance the, the you know, solo number for Victoria? Purely from the position of a, of an audience member and a performer very attracted to the you know the production as a dancer because you know the the skills that I had as a dancer you get to have this individual beautiful part uh that that character in particular has quite a few uh special solo moments uh and so I, I was really drawn to it just watching the performance and wow I would love to have the opportunity to to dance that choreography and play that role mm-hmm. So as a dancer, I, I do also think it's it's fascinating because I'm not a dancer, I'm not a singer. So I watched the first time I saw it, which was 2016 from a story perspective. And I think that's why we're here today. Did you hatch most of the story or were you more enthralled with the choreography? When I was watching it? The first time, yeah. The first time you saw it. I don't think anybody gets the story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I know that they, you know, there's always a discussion when a new company is put together. I was a replacement in the... <laughs> Uh, the tour that I joined. So I didn't have that, you know, full company meeting where they take you through what the narrative is that they've built, um, you know, within the, the, the company. But, uh, 
No, I don't think anybody gets it. I think it's more for the performers to tell you honest, honest truth, uh, not rather than it being um, sort of an explicit journey. I mean, he, Andrew Lloyd Webber, took T.S. Eliot's poems, which are Victorian era poems, um, with the the facade of cats, but it's really about you know human beings mm-hmm. uh, and the human experience. And then Gillian Lynn came in and, frankly, beautifully and brilliantly. A created movement and choreography to support those poems and the the music, which was uh, you know a combination of musical theater music and rock and roll and synth, and it was really revolutionary for its time. I wish you could have seen it back then, like these yeah. original versions, because it was so different. You didn't have anything like that. It was immersive. I, I'm not a theater historian, but Cats really was one of the first that took that set fully into the audience. The cast was roaming around the audience. You know, they got to touch and see the cats, you know, up close and um, the way that they lit it, the kind of music, the narrative, which was not clear. It was more atmospheric and character driven than specific story plot driven. Mm-hmm. That was really a new and exciting kind of theater back then. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I like. I do wish I could go sit in the 80s and see kind yeah. of like the early piece of it because it's modern theater so different and there's a lot of discourse about that now about what's selling and what's not and what's creative what's new it's just such a different time and i think it's also just a different era you know you don't have tiktok and all these other things that no, social it was media brand buzz. New. people were seeing yeah. it was this whole different kind of theater experience really in every way from the costumes to the um sort of source material to the way that they they executed it and so I think that, you know, people were really in awe back then because in some ways it's a very, you know, bizarre, bizarre kind yeah. of thing. But I think what they did so brilliantly back then was to uh, bring all of those elements together, the music, the poems, um, the characters, the costumes, the set, the lighting into this really unusual and powerful experience for its time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's sustained. I mean, I think that's the other thing that's like, because it was so revolutionary at the time, it's now 40 plus years later that it's still going in very similar capacity. But I want you to take me to the the audition process and also how you ended up as the replacement, because that is a, a really big part of that you, that you mentioned you missed, which is that like, here's the story, here's the Felinity School, here's that. You come in and you kind of get thrown right in. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you landed the show, but then also how did you figure out the character development when you're not getting that moment in the rehearsal process? Well, I think that I'm a little bit, um, have a little bit of a unique experience, uh, maybe as compared to some of the newer, you know, recent productions or cast members coming into those shows. And that again, it was still a first class, full equity national mm-hmm. tour that was given the time. Uh, forecasting and the time to rehearsal there was no go in in a, a week kind of thing you yeah. I had the full I can't remember how many weeks we got it was either three or four weeks but it was a substantial amount of time to go through all of those elements the other thing that I had the benefit of was that this fourth national tour uh, which eventually became the only national tour was populated mostly by cast members from the Los Angeles company which I ran I think around two years and they learned the show from Jillian Lynn and the mm-hmm. original uh, director, choreographer, Andrew Lloyd Webber. They were all a part of that company. So I 
had the benefit of hearing what they learned by learning the show from the people that originally created it. It wasn't, you know, 10 steps removed. It was, so I heard what Jillian said specifically about my character and how I was to dance the solo. And, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber actually at that time still came out and visited our company. So, you know, I also had the benefit of talking to him about the show and my character. Uh, And I don't know if uh, younger companies have that opportunity, but it was still pretty close to the core uh, original creators. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now what did they tell you? What is the Victoria backstory that you heard directly from the original people? What I heard was this, and I wrote it down so I could remember. (laughs) Oh, amazing. From the lips of Jillian Lynn is what she said about Victoria is that she is a pulsating plum ready to be picked. Pulsating plum ready to be picked. Wow. And so, that's, but that, that fascinates me that you get that line and you've got to build your whole character arc off of that. It was enough. That's I, all you I need. I totally understood it. I mean, I think that they really, you know, something that I, I don't know how <clears throat> much is infused into, um, you know, other companies, but I know that when they talk to us, about casting and the different characters, they were really focused on the uniqueness of the inner life of each character and how that manifested itself physically, vocally, facially. So I think you saw a real distinct uniqueness back in the 80s and the 90s of these cats with those original creative teams. And I don't know how, how long that continued for with, with people that still had had the benefit of the knowledge of the original uh, creators, but you know, Victoria needed to be a particular size. They like to have mm-hmm. particular facial features. The same for any of the kittens; they needed to be small. Like run- the the rumple teasers that we had were tiny, stocky, uh, you know, gymnastics type um, women. Uh, the Cassandras were super tall and skinny, and there was a distinction between Cassandra and um, Victoria. So y- there was no. Um, it was never a homogenous looking cast of just the best dancers around. Everyone was very good, but they had distinct ways of moving and they had very distinctive body and face types. And I felt like some of these other companies that I saw, I didn't see that as much, that difference in each character on stage, which I think gives it a depth that is necessary. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's, it's an interesting part of the show because as someone who's seen, has talked to a lot of people now about mm-hmm. this, and has seen only more modern productions, you yes. know, really of 2016 forward, um, and what I can find on YouTube or what, you know, whatever I can find on the internet, there has been a change. And there's been some that I think has also reshaped at least some of the, for me, the story arcs of it. So when you have a younger Grizabella, it's harder for me to accept her as a joke of choice. When you have a younger Jenny Anydots, it doesn't make her feel as motherly necessarily. And sometimes, so I do think that some of those changes maybe are part of where the chaos of the storylines kind of comes from over the years and where you see some of these differences versus I think what I'm hearing you say is a while back it was very it was cast very specifically it was to fit the story and I I think that's really important for its success you know Mm -hmm. when you look back at those those original company that 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 the way that it was constructed all of those replica companies were very successful and ran for decades I don't know how how long it was 20 years or so So why was it so successful? You have to go back and look at some of the elements that, um, you know, fueled that. And I, I think one of them was Jillian Lynn's choreography. Mm -hmm. She knew when to be still. 
She knew when it was okay to have a frenzy on stage and the energy of the full company doing something. She knew who should be dancing which number and who should not. It was never random. It was never like, here's dance steps that go with um, this music. It was, why would Victoria be dancing this? Why would she not be dancing that? Why is the company suddenly hits a freeze like cats do? And why does the company or a particular character go, you know, you know, skeetering about like cats do sometimes? And I, I felt like it, those elements were there. Yeah. Uh, then. And it's very easy to make it a three ring circus. Uh, totally. Totally. And then you don't know what's going on. You don't know where to look. Like I thought they did a great job of helping to focus the audience towards a certain thing at a particular time, um, which balanced the show and helped you kind of flow through the experience, which I don't, I never heard it as much of a, we were given a storyline ish, but it was really more about the characters having this experience together. And then of course, you know, the, the reckoning for Grizabella, which mm-hmm. has a satisfying ending as speaking as a producer. <laughs> yeah. So well, we're going to get to that. Cause I, I, I will, I have some, I have deep thoughts there. Um, I want to hear a little bit though, because I, you know, you, you're given one sentence essentially, which gives you the backstory of what you need to go. But then you also are, are staged a certain way. You're told when to dance and when not to dance. What elements do you remember from Victoria's story that were like, oh, here's a moment or here are a couple of things that I have to do to kind of land her arc. Even whether it's a dance moment of a vocal moment, um, a piece of like, where you, who are you standing next to? Mm-hmm. Like, what are those moments? Well, I think she has, of course, her beautiful solo mm-hmm. in the very beginning uh, of the show with that one pool of light coming from overhead. And that introduces her and that that's the beginning of her um, kind of story arc, I guess, if you will. Mm-hmm. And she's just sort of, you know, have an, an introspective moment. I, in my mind, it's her first time coming to the ball and she's exploring what that means to be a part of that tribe. And, um, and in this moment, again, that, that quote from Jillian Lynn, I think is very appropriate that she's sort of exploring herself as a, a, a young woman coming mm-hmm. of age and all yeah. the things that that means. I've, I've heard some Jillian Wynn quotes about that, uh, yeah. particular. And so then she sort of takes yeah. that next step, I think, in the ball, because she's mm-hmm. got a couple of pas de deux moments in there with, uh, in my case, it was with, um, Tumble Brutus. Mm-hmm. And she does, you know, she's got a, depending on how the company is choreographed in mine, Victoria did all of those moments. She does the big lift with Monka Strap in the very beginning. I don't know if the, the post 2016 companies do that. Um, and she does the two solos in the ball as well. And, um, and most of the ball I don't, the, the, in the, the videotape of the London company capture, I think Victoria's not in quite as many of the ball sections, but in my company, I pretty much did nearly, nearly all of them that wow. the girls were in. Yeah. Yeah. So you were dancing a lot. It was exhausting, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Yeah, I so, had no idea. You know, in fact, every show that I did after that, for some reason, I always felt like, oh, I hadn't fully done it because it wasn't like Cats, where at the end of Act One, you are just, no matter how fit you are, you're just, it was just, you know, you're just sweating bullets and out of breath. And it was uh, an incredible experience, but boy, it was hard. Did yeah. you have a city where you're just like, why did I leave producing to, to do this? <laughs> uh, 
I it was always harder to do in places like, say, Salt Lake City, where the elevation mm, yeah. was really high. So they used to have, um, you know, canisters of oxygen back yeah. there for us. So that was always difficult. And or if the theater had was really old and had strange, you know, challenges. I, I never had the feeling of why did I do this? I always loved it. But uh, some of those things were like on, on top of the challenge of the show, also having to deal with that. Like, I can't remember where it was, but there was some town that we were in where the the theater had no crossover, meaning you mm. couldn't get from stage left to stage right without going somewhere else. Uh, and in this case, you had to run through the lobby of the hotel next door, which was an old folks home. Oh. And so we would we would be running through this, and you had to run because it was a you know the the show was not put together with the thought that you were going to have to go next door to get to the other side yeah. of the stage. <laughs> uh, but these the the people in the old folks home were started lining up and sitting like in rows on either side of this lobby to watch us run past and cheer us on like we were doing the Boston Marathon or something. That's that's so fun. Yeah. Well, I, so I, we'll we'll jump to the segment, then we'll come back to some of the questions I have because I love hearing crazy tour stories so like what are some of the ones you remember that were either bizarre funny memorable moments from being on tour let me think um well that was one of them i re really remember mm -hmm. that pretty distinctly there was another place i think it was in wisconsin in the middle of winter they also didn't have a crossover you had to go outside you had in to go outside tiny these, costume these, and run these, out these, run outside these unitards are thin yeah um, I mean, some people wore an under like a second layer underneath. I didn't like to do that. It just made me feel a little less connected to my body and the floor. But um, yeah, that one was, that was really cold. Uh, so I remember that. We, we also had the, I probably the only company that played Alaska and Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So those were really interesting experiences. When we went to Hawaii, I believe it was the first time that Cats was performed in an arena. So we did wow. this big arena thing with like screens all over the place. And Andrew Lloyd Webber also came out to that. They were experimenting with that. And uh, so that was really interesting. We were sold out. It was, a, it was a, uh, you know, 10,000 seats, people coming to see cats out there. And I guess they don't get a lot of musical theater. It's just too expensive to get the set out there. And I don't know, has to, they have to fly it or put it on a boat. I don't know yeah. what, but um, that was a, Super cool. So this is like a sports arena and yeah. there, cause they did a, I know in uh, Australia, they did like a circular, like circus tent. So that was probably while they were testing those things out of like, how could we do a, not necessarily bigger, but a different type of staging because you have, you have like less of a behind, I mean, I guess, you know, you're, you're cutting off a corner of the stadium, right? Mm -hmm. They, we, as I recall, um, it was, they sort of like a, had a platform, like it wasn't the foot, we didn't do it in the round. It was, uh, yeah, they, there was a part of it that was cut off for backstage and, um, yeah, it was unusual. It was definitely unusual kind of experience. That, um, I think that's the only time we did it like that. And they were testing out having, if it was still resonant for the people that were really far away to have the big screen so they could see more up close. And then as a performer, you sort of had to keep that in mind as well, that you, were performing to people that were pretty far away, but there was also this sort of micro view of your yeah. face or your body that you needed to be aware of as well. Did you uh, so um, did you go to the audience in those stadiums? Like, did you still I do green eyes out there? Okay. Yeah, I think we did. And then Alaska, the interesting thing about that was that, you know, again, theater didn't get up there that often. 
Mm-hmm. And so people came multiple, multiple times. They were so excited to have a show. They're like, we don't care what the show is. We're just going to yeah. see it three or four times. So that was kind of interesting to see people come back often. And then again, the community was so excited to have uh, the show there that we would go out to dinner and uh, people would buy our dinner. Just say, oh, that table over there is buying your dinner because they just want to welcome you to Alaska. <laughs> wow. So if that didn't happen other places. So I, yeah. th- that was kind of an, one of the unusual aspects of Alaska. And uh, we were there in the warmer months. So that was kind of nice. We were able to see the, some of the countryside around there. And it's just beautiful area. What was the reception like in general? I mean, this is still so new. Like, it's not like now when Cats comes to town, people have a pretty good sense of at least, they, they can at least do their, their research and figure out what it is. But in the you know late 80s, early 90s, that's less possible. And then a lot of times it's going to be the first time that Cats has ever been to this city. So what was the, did you have any kind of mixed reactions or everyone very open and like I, they knew what they were getting into? Like, what was the, the tour like there? It was pretty universally um, loved. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. so unusual. And people, we didn't, this was before computers and the common use of VCRs. And it hadn't ever been recorded at that time. So it was this really new, surprising experience for people. And I think that's, I'm so grateful that I was a part of that for something so new and exciting. People didn't know what to expect when they came in. I mean, all you see is the two eyes, the two yellow cat eyes with some dancer figures in there. And so they didn't know what to expect. So you come in, there's no curtain, like the the set is there before you, you know, bleeding out into the audience. And then you're Mm -hmm. surprised with the type of music that it is. It's very synth-based and electronic. And then you got, you you know, while it's pitch black dark, dark, the, the cats are out there in the in the audience, surprising people. People really didn't know about that. Yeah, um, I didn't. I didn't in 2016 even, and I was not ready for that. Thankfully, I was not on the aisle. Or I so people are, you know, I think we we spark them with that moment, and uh, we spark them with the when they come in, something totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. So people, I think, you know, the response was always like, "Wow, I just had a like a really incredible experience." They may not have known that there was some sort of narrative in there, but they did understand that it was a tribe of cats, that they were all different. They had different, uh, you know, personalities and different backstories and that this one cat had had a a rough time and she was going to get another opportunity. Yeah, it's I, I do. I do. I do love the fact of like people are getting to witness this the first time and kind of like embrace it. But Mm -hmm. but it was, you know, the thing too. you know, back when I um, was a part of it. It was for a dancer. It was the show to be in. I mean, and Victoria, along with a couple of the other parts in there, was one of the best dance roles you could have, if not the best dance role in the of that you know whole era. I mean, at that time, this was um, Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis and a lot of more Tommy Toom type shows with your Mm -hmm. uh, kind of a rockette tall dancer. So for me. Uh, it would it was it was such a so huge to be able to have been considered for that part and then get it because it was highly sought after. You know, this every dancer in town showed up for those open calls for cats. I remember um, I went to two of the large, big open calls, and from those, I you know eventually got to a, a short list. 
And I know that yeah. what I did, of course, was I, you know, prepared after I went to the first one and we knew what choreography they would be doing for the most part, that, you know, you just made sure that I worked on that really hard. I, you know, got some private coaching on how can I make my dynamics that much sharper, that much more powerful. Mm-hmm. And so that when I went back the second time to a big open call, I had this really beautiful moment in my life where you, we danced in like groups of 50. It was on a Broadway stage and we came in there and we danced in group of 50. And after my group went, the assistant stopped and said, okay, we want everyone to do it again, except for you, Natasha. And I'm like, oh my God, am I in trouble? Am I get kicked yeah, out? What's yeah. going on? And he said, no. Um, he said, no, this is good. You, They could not look at anyone but you. That's all wow. they saw. So you don't need to do it again. You can come over here and sit down and they're going to look at the other people. That's got to so. be terrifying for everyone else in the room being like, uh, oh, well, why am I here anymore? <laughs> it, <laughs> this was, person. it was a, I, I just, you know, you immediately thought you had done something wrong, but no, it was, I'd done something very right. So that was great. And then from that moment on, I was then called into smaller closed auditions. Um, at the time, the casting office for Cats and most of the big shows was Johnson Lip. And they uh, called me in for the first time after that. There was maybe you know, 10 or 15 dancers there for Cassandra. I think Cassandra Broadway. And I didn't get it then, but I'm not that tall. So that, that was, wasn't surprising. And, uh, and then the, the next time was for Victoria and the tour. And then I, I did get it that time. So that wow. was pretty exciting. Although I didn't wait. You know, I remember I was so anxious and so on edge about it that I, you're not supposed to do this. But again, the only way you found out, we didn't have computers. We, they have to yeah. call you. You have to sit by your phone and hope you get a call. I don't even think I had an answering machine yeah. at that okay. time. Wow. So you're like waiting for the phone to ring. So I'm like, I, I can't take it. So, And I knew that this character needed to go out on the road pretty quickly. Like it was mm-hmm. a very fast turnaround. And they, I just called the casting office and you're never supposed to do that. But I just, I called him up and I said, you know, I auditioned for this, uh, for Victoria for the road. And I know that it's pretty fast turnaround. Could you just let me know if they've cast the role yet? And the person that answered the phone was really nice. He's like, what's your name? And I said, Natasha Davison. He said, Natasha Davison, hold on just one second. And so then he goes away and he comes back and he says, don't tell anybody because the producers are going to call you. They're just a little behind, but you got it. Wow. Oh, it was so exciting. And then the process of being put into the show was also so exciting. Again, you, at those days, you have to go to the producer's office to sign your contract, (laughs) which was just cool. You know, to get to meet them and sign the contract, take a picture of yourself signing the contract. And then also in those days, you went to the Broadway house and they made this mold of your head. Everything was handmade for me. So they made wow. a mold of my head for the wigs and of my feet and, you know, measured every possible part of your body. Like they kind of put you in a unitard and they like around your fingers and your neck and like really drawing out your feet so that those slippers at the time were hand sewn for us from this very soft leather. I don't, I don't know what they do now, but, um, and then you know, kind of looking at your body contours about how they're going to paint the unitard and where they're going to place the fur, um, on, on the unitard. Like so Victoria doesn't have that much. And it was never, but some of the ones lately that has it more bunchy, but this was really, um, kind of diffused throughout the whole unitard, mm-hmm. which is just beautiful. And so just the process of them making the costumes and the way, all of that was pretty cool too. I learned the show on the road 
but the, the preparation of all of that other stuff happened in New York. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back for more of The Wrong Cat Died. I want to go back to, you were in the production for five years, six years, I think is what I about have, kind of on and off. Years on and off. Yeah, I did it almost two and two and a half, two and three quarters years, almost three years the first time. I, I went into the company and then I went back pretty much every year for several months until so, 1994. Yeah. So I think this is where I'm kind of fascinated about the differences. Cause you know, that first year you're given your story and your arc and you're kind of playing off of what that, that first cast is doing as a replacement. But then each year you get new people and new actors, new performers and different relationships. How does like, how did your Victoria evolve? Like, were there ever moments where your, I mean, not material changes, but like maybe you were slightly closer to play, like playing a relationship with this character this year that you weren't the next year, not because of any any different reason, but it was just a different person. I think that's very insightful of you. Yes, because <laughs> we do have a lot of uh, improv time in the show mm -hmm. where we're engaging with the other characters around us. Now, in terms of staging, you can't change where you're placed yeah. on stage for that, but the way you interact with the this cat or that cat might change a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, did you? So, how does that impact the story for you? Like, what would you say is is Victoria's? Like, you you kind of given the line, you've given the story, but like, what are the other relationships? Is she like? Here's some. I'll just throw a couple out. Is she Grizabella's daughter? Is she last year's Jellicle choice? Like, how much of this is even thought about? when you're doing this on the fourth tour i it was not just about <laughs> no, not at all so no. this, i'm that's all I, i'm the only one thinking about these things with the fans no i mean you're reacting in the moment as your character with the other cats you know i'm going to be different with say one of the other kittens or like syllabub or mm -hmm. tumble brutus or pounceable than i would be with the older adult cats um you know a little bit more deferential to them i'm not going to like go pounce on you know bomb bell urina she goes swap me away yeah, I do stuff like that, but I might play around a little bit with the other kittens. I think um, so. That kind of uh, that would change with the people on stage, but it didn't really change my character or what I felt was happening to her. Mm -hmm. Kind of coming of age through the course of that. So, so that's I think that part's fascinating because now current like the current tours, the tour that just finished and went out for the last couple of years, and even the the 2016 group that did it on Broadway they're inundated with fan theories and it's so there's so much out there now there's so much fan fiction and stories and you know me type, talking about these things like this type of thing exists and they have those conversations on the bus and i like i'm fascinated by like where you weren't having these conversations at all on the no. tour like, you weren't sitting there thinking, <laughs> well at least right, if, if there were those kind of conversations going on uh i don't re i don't remember you know mm -hmm. or i wasn't a part of them uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think in jest, we might do something like that, but not in any seriousness. Okay. I mean, you know, like, That's wouldn't it be great if, you know, we could just decide that, you know, let's call the heavy side layer rehab and send McCavity up there. Yeah. <laughs> Get him out of the tribe. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's a fun piece. As well. I mean, it's really the only reason I, you know, the show exists and so many people listen to it is, is that there are a bunch of these theories and it has kind of ended up on stage a little bit to your point you can't change the staging you're not changing the dance numbers you're not changing the lines but you can change those improv moments and you can change the looks you give you could be smiling versus frowning or you can be you know uh, pawing playfully versus uh, aggressively 
And that does kind of change a little bit of the arc of, of each character. I do character. think that Victoria is always really drawn to Grizabella. Mm-hmm. So much so that she's courageous enough in those final moments when the rest of the tribe is still shunning her, that she stands up, even though she's one of the youngest cats there. Mm-hmm. And so you don't see her as a mom? Like that's as not your, Grizabella, as, 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 as Victoria's, Victoria's mother. Yeah. I never thought of her that way. But I felt my character was always really, really drawn to her. Okay. And so I think that's a could be a potential. I mean, Gris, I would think more granddaughter. I mean, could, yeah. Grizabella is yeah. not. She's like, she's not just haggard. She's old. Yeah. You know, at least that's the way that it was played at the time. Is you know, she? physically, um, you know, not injured but aged. She was aged. So an aged cat would not necessarily have a a you know whatever uh, you say 16 year old daughter so i would say more grandmother if anything but yeah i think it's fun to think about that who knows maybe that's all the (laughs) yeah that's all the i think that's what the show's about is was my show's about so we is i've thought about all the different versions of like is she last year's jokal choice that's i think to me one of the potentials is that oh i think that's very possible Mm -hmm. i think that's an excellent um you know, possibility. Yeah, for sure. But none of this stuff is told to you. You're given no. one sentence and no. then you're staging. No, I mean, you know, they, it's already very messy kind of, you know, coalescence of all these elements. It's already mm-hmm. that. So I think to bring in some of those things, well, there would be no way to explicitly have that be clear. Yeah. So I think that I think the cool thing about that show is that I think they really brilliantly had enough information and and enough vacuums that a viewer could fill with whatever other thoughts they might have to deepen or enrich in their experience with the piece, and which is exactly what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's. I mean, it has. To, I kind of like that it's ambiguous. Like I do think that there's some fun of that and. I have had some moments where I've sparked a debate online and the, you know, the audience is straight 50, 50 in deciding between these two, which I think is really cool. Like I find that unique that there's, it doesn't have to be for the show to be successful. It doesn't have to be like this person is hit in this box for this reason at this moment and nothing else. It is open-ended. And I think that's why so many fans are late to, to the show because there's probably a character you can relate to, or at least a moment you can relate to that for your personal life. And I think that that's what resonates. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious for you. I know you're a professor now. Do you teach? Does cats ever end up in your courses? No, no. Okay. <laughs> um, well, let's. Let, let, I take that back. Um, when I first started teaching at University of Texas, I taught musical theater dance. So mm-hmm. I did um, teach uh, a little bit of the Jellicle Ball, and I actually still have and still have my old rehearsal tale. Uh, that, you know, when you start learning the show, you, they give you this tale so you can start learning how to either A, manipulate it or B, learn to work with it. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, especially for Victoria, there are times when you've got to do lifts and you're on your back and you've got to learn how to, to do that all with this thing on, on your back. So there were, um, in that sense, yes, but not, um, not beyond that, other than as an example of a, you know, successful IP. That um, despite its the its uniqueness, it um, you know wildly it was a mega musical, wildly successful. Yeah, 
Okay. And, and has, as someone who's produced, sorry, is it a dream of your to ever produce this? Sure. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. You know, it's, it's, I don't think that it would be available. I, if I were to produce it, I'd probably want to do a, a re- replica of the original, if that were ever to be allowed to, uh, to do that again. You know, maybe yeah. upon that, make it even more immersive uh, than it was. And um, I think that would be super. Oh, it would. I, yeah, I'd be thrilled. Well, I'll give you my idea of how, how I would like it to produce, which is I want to have a, a more immersive in the sense I want the audience to vote on the Jellical Choice each night. <laughs> and so that's how we're, that's how I think we make it really immersive is let, let the audience decide who gets to go up on the tire. Gotcha. Um, let's go to some rapid fire. So okay. if you could go on one night in the show, whether you're the right height, age, whatever, or just, if you could just produce, play one character for one night, who would you want to go on as? Bombay Arena. Bombay Arena. Just Sigma fun. Cavity. Yeah. Yeah. She's just beautiful. I love her costume and her, uh, <laughs> wig and the makeup, the whole thing. And she's just fun. She's got a, you know, carefree sort of powerful female presence. And um, she gets to do Sing the Cavity, which is really, a, you know, great fun song. And um, yeah, probably Bombay Arena. I love it. Who are your favorite and least favorite characters in the show? Which cats do you love and which cats do you dislike? Hmm. These are questions I've never pondered. Yeah. Well, I definitely my favorite cat was victoria because Mm -hmm. that's whom i played um their cat i dislike do you mean the character i guess yeah no i don't want to we're not gonna throw actors and no 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 i know so if you're thinking about either as victoria or just as you as natasha like which is the personality of the cat that'd be like i I really can't stand this one hmm i don't know that i had that i had anyone that i i i didn't you know a character that i didn't like in gate well i guess mccavity i mean he was mean (laughs) yeah yeah just the villain i love it (laughs) yeah Uh, what's your favorite song from the show my favorite song from the show like the music or the number either either i would say that the 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 number that i remember and was most uh you know satisfied doing would be the ball Mm -hmm. really exhausting but it's just so many beautiful moments for victoria that yeah. I, I love that number. I also really liked the opening number. Yeah. Like I really, there are parts of the opening number, like when we're in a little clump, um, you know, practical cats, practical cats. Yeah. Like, I'm probably saying the lyrics wrong, but uh, that one, I really liked that moment. Victoria's and my company was in the front for that. And it just, you know, we were sort of introducing a lot of that feline movement. And um, yeah, I love the opening number. Nice. Uh, did you have a number, like a song, like a cat song that you liked the most? Uh, in terms of the melody, um, well, I th- always loved, you know, memory. Yeah. I think it's one of the this most not- iconic m- melodic lines in the show. We're leading to what I think is not going to be uh, the, I think you're going to ha- uh, disagree with me on the last question. But before that, I always ask one fun one in the rapid fire. So as a professor, which cat do you think would be the best professor? The best professor. Uh, hmm. Probably Gus or Bustifer, you know, mm-hmm. as, you know, when I think of, and I, and I, by the way, I'm, I'm thinking of this in the context of Victorian England. Like if oh, you okay. were to take the cats in the context of the era that it was written, those poems were written, they sort of seem very professorial and yeah. 
I, I thought of Gus. The other two, um, I didn't think of Bustifer. I, or maybe, I, maybe Monkestrap. I mean, Monkestrap oh, is the, good... kind of the leader narrator yeah. of this, and he's got a very powerful, calm leadership sort of presence throughout the show. The two that came to mind, and for very different reasons, is I thought Skimbleshanks would keep a very orderly class. Oh, he would. Skim- you want to you think, but he's also very nervous and skittish. Mm, so it's one true. of those things. He's sort of OCD, right? And then the the professor I think that has the best like teacher ratings is probably Joey Lauren. I think Joey Lauren would be an excellent oh, she like, would. teacher and would care for her students and would be very would would have all the best ratings, but probably gave too many A's that the university didn't like. <laughs> She's too nice. Yeah. Joey Lauren would be great. I could see that. Yep. Uh, so those are excellent and the, choices. And the worst ones is Tugger and McCavity. Oh right. They're the they're the guys in the back that are like got their sunglasses on and yes. are sleeping. Or didn't even come. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't even come. come to show. If they came at all, exactly. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's ask the million dollar question. So the the thesis of this podcast has been arguing that I don't think Grizabella is the right choice. So I want to hear: Do you want to defend Grizabella as your jellical choice? Um, and if so, why? And if not, who would be your jellical choice? Okay, so um, you are right. I think that you know the piece was written with specifically this arc of her song for her mm-hmm. to be chosen. I mean, she has to be chosen in the context of this show that they wrote. So if someone else were to write a show in a different way, then I think, yeah, it's up for grabs. Could be any one of whomever, whatever cats that they created and uh, whatever the songs were, do you know what I mean? But this, in this pr- particular composition, I think it has to be Grisabella. However, I heard you say that you felt like she needed to go the next year. And I was going to say that, you know, how there's time on stage is contracted. So there is, mm-hmm. I don't know how many seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, where Grisabella, after Victoria touches her and she's chosen, she goes around and is, you know, engaging with she the other cats. The line, They're all turning right? around. Yeah. That in cat, that in stage year, that's a year in stage time. So she is getting that moment because it's all contracted, right? So those those many seconds are her reengaging with the community before she goes up to uh, be, you know, transformed and reborn again. So I'm sort of agreeing with you on the year she did, but she does get that moment. Okay, she so does. you're picking Grizabella still. I'm still picking Grizabella and arguing that she does get that sort of that those moments with those cats again, um, and it's just longer, you know. Than you think I, it is. Yeah. So I, that's fascinating. So that's a very interesting counter argument to my current debate. Like, could you that. say she has a, I think she does. And I yeah. do think the, uh, the new cats that come into the tribe, like Victoria, she could very well be last year's choice. I think that's mm-hmm. a, I could see that. Absolutely. So I, that's, I, I love that. I love that the, that the, the line that she gets to go through where she gets to interact with each cat. That's a year. Is, a full year. Okay, full we get, year we get like 15 seconds on stage and we get a year. That means that the ball is like 20 years, 30 That's years. Right. Like, it's, like everybody it's, aged it yeah, from that okay. ball like a couple so of years. So I want to ask this question then, because I think this is what, uh, granted, this is, these are all very unanswerable questions. I'm very yes. aware of that. Um, what's old Deuteronomy's criteria that, because like I, I get the story arc of Grizabella and that she's picked. But is there another cat, like next year, is there another cat that was banished that's going to get picked? Or like, how's he choosing next year? Well, I think in the case of Grizabella, it's because she needs it. Do you know what? She needs it. Mm-hmm. And then maybe uh, Deuteronomy believes that she's ready 
Like you have to be ready for transformation and choose transformation. I mean, she could have just stayed in the shadows and never come out and um, tried to re-engage with the Jellicle cats, mm-hmm. but she does. So maybe that's the fact that she did that is what helped her character cross the Rubicon into being chosen rather than not being chosen. Okay. So that would eliminate, because Gus also needs it. But he does need he it. Maybe isn't as ready. Uh, that's could be. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it could be. And this yeah, is never. Doesn't. This is never discussed, right? Like this is nothing. It's something you're never thinking about. No, no, we never went like, how come it's Grizzly Bella? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he would. Uh, he would need that eleventh hour song too. You know, we'd need to know a little bit more about him, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I love this question because I think as a Victoria, you you know you're being picked. You're not ready. It's like not part of the arc at all, but there are all the, there's, you know, a Gus and a bunch of others. It's like, all right, how did you sell yourself on like, why not me today? Um, and it's an interesting piece of it because I don't, we're only given, well, in, in your new theory, we're only given uh, maybe a couple of years, but we're given one ball, we're given one choice and we're given that, that timeline and that's it to, to understand this whole universe and decision and this ritual. And it's, to me, it's almost like it's really challenging because of that. And granted, this all started as a joke because I just saw Leona Lewis and I was like, this is the X Factor. And so that's how I wanted to vote. That's why I want to vote. I still want to yeah. vote version of this. But then as I've dug through this more, I'm like, well, how was last year's choice made? How's next year's choice made? Is it, there's not, there's not that answered. And I think it's a really interesting question. And I'm glad that I'm now slowly starting to get people to think about it because I want, I want to understand in this universe that was created, what does that look like? Yeah. And how do they think about it? It's sort of, who do you choose to help? Yeah. You're going to rally around this year. And maybe every ball has a different type of person that they're going to help for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, it would never be Victoria because she just got there. Yeah. She's brand new. It's not going to be the kittens unless something, you know, horrible happened to them and they need to, you know, their journey is going to be short in that the life of that cat yeah so um well there's a whole other conversation that can go around that as if victoria was truly last year what was her you know like what's the who prequel? was she before well i think yeah. she's brand new you oh know, you think she's new so you I don't think, think she, this was her being reborn well she's yeah i think being reborn is your brand new you're a clean slate mm-hmm. and i think that's another thing you think about with victoria she's you know she's pure and all the things that kind of go with the connotations of that yeah, um, but so, I want to know what her story was before she was sent to the Heaviside Lair because she's coming back as Victoria. Yeah, she's coming was back. She a, was she a Grizabella arc where she left and was banished and got her redemption? Was I don't she, know. Like, it's, it's very interesting because you know they start the movie that way mm-hmm. with Victoria being abandoned, which, oh gosh, didn't really uh, connect with um, how I always thought of the show. I mean, I, I love that they make Victoria a more central character. I thought that yeah. was very cool, only because I had played Victoria. But she, I mean, my, the backstory on her was that she was from a, you know, in a very well-to-do, fancy house. You know, she has the nice pink collar and she's so clean and well taken care of and innocent and protected. And so that was the only thing that didn't um, align a little bit with me in terms of her story arc in the film. Oh, there's a lot of stuff in the film that doesn't oh, The film align. is just... Um, <laughs> Listen, you know, so many talented people working on that, but I did think it was a bit of a missed opportunity. Also, you know, I love Andy Blankenbuehler's work and um, that director's work, but 
I think I've, some of the elements that made the original well, really resonant were missing there. And also something, you know, I also did Beauty and the Beast for Disney. Mm-hmm. And we we learned a very I learned a very valuable lesson that was articulated so well by the folks that directed us. You know, you've got you have to keep really grounded in the truth of your character and the truth of the story here. Otherwise, your character becomes a caricature. Mm, interesting. And you don't, you know, the costumes already take care of that fantasy world that you're in. You don't need to do anything about that. You don't need to amplify that. You need to keep the the truth of your the the kind of human part of your character the strongest part of your performance. Yeah. So that it doesn't become superficial and silly and yeah, again, a caricature as opposed to a you know a deeply rooted character. Yeah, that's a really interesting quote and and piece because i do think like the movie missed to me not because of the talent of the people but because of the way it was edited i just didn't get to see the choreography the way i would want to i didn't get to see the dancing the way because it was just moving around so frequently that it was hard to follow um and they made some edits and some choices that were very different to the to me the plot and the actual story um, and a lot of weird general decisions of like why is this cat huge and then tiny and huge and then tiny and all this other, there's a lot of other things, but, but I love the idea of like, you're already in a cat suit. You're already doing the cat's mannerisms. Like you're taught that mm-hmm. stick to being Victoria and exactly. you'll be able to land Victoria's story, not Victoria, the cat, but Victoria. Um, that's a really, really, really sound advice. It was. And I, I know that for um, Beauty and the Beast again, they would tell us that it can so easily you can so easily start going just for the gags and and all of that and don't do that because you kind of lose the heart of the story. I mean, in that show, I had I, I was in the German premiere company, so I did get the mm-hmm. chance to learn it as a as a whole group. And I played, I had an ensemble track where I'm like a towns lady, a wolf, a plate, yeah. a napkin, you know. Um, and then I also played Babette, who's the feather duster. But, you know, you have to play to the character of Babette, not the feather duster. Yeah. Otherwise, she's she's just going to be, yeah, again, I mean, not nearly as resonant. So, and I think the yeah. same was true of Cats. But they were, I, you know, it was, I think the same, um, Richard Stafford was also maintained our show and he, I think he's still involved. In mm-hmm. it, he, he, he did is. a really great job of keeping the show on track. And every now and then they would even change something in choreography that you were so used to doing that um, you had to be on your toes. It was a great strategy to keep everybody, you know, not phoning it in as it were. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when you're traveling around and you're doing it eight times a week or or more and and you're, Oh, it's exhausting. I don't think people necessarily understand how tiring it is. Not only uh, the schedule, because you only, when you're on the road, depending on how many times you're moving cities. I mean, we had, well, we would stay for months. Like when we go to some of the bigger cities, we stayed in San Francisco for a while. Um, or we might be some, we might have two cities in one week, mm-hmm. you know, have a split week. And so when you combine the travel with the show, we often didn't get a day off that wasn't about the show. So um, that's tiring. And then because it's so physically grueling, you're, I mean, at least my body. Every time I woke up, I'd be like, it was hard to get out of bed because it's got to uh, be some the, of the, the best shape you're ever in, right? Like it's well, so demanding. You are. So and I will say that I don't think 
depending on the choreography, didn't suit everybody's body. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm, got through that show without injury. I mean, I did get a broken finger at one point because somebody kicked me, but uh. Uh, but I never had any injury from doing the show. But for some people, uh, yeah, it was hard. I think it was hard on however their body just happened to be made. Because, you know, choreography is not balanced. It could have, you know, 25 batmas on the right leg and none on the left. Yeah. And, you know, so you can start to get a little imbalanced that way. So we would work really hard to you know, maintain your body. So it didn't start compensating and then you have a problem. And then, so I was, I was pretty lucky that way, but we worked hard at it. I mean, I would, was doing all kinds of, you know, massage work and physical therapy and exercise and stretching to, uh, you know, mitigate any problems. It is fascinating. It's one of the things that when I saw it the very first time was one of the biggest takeaways besides the story where I'm like, what did I watch? Is I kept thinking like these performers are working so hard for so long with no break. I was I was just amazed. It's like, you know, I, I grew up playing hockey and hockey is a sprint. So it's, you know, you're, you're on for 30 seconds, you're off for a minute. And I've always like, I couldn't run a marathon today, but I could run a marathon if you let me do it that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching these performers and I'm like, oh, I assume the theater was kind of similar. Like you get your moments on stage, you get your moments off. You get your moments on stage, you get your moments off. And I'm like, nope, these cats are on the entire time. Pretty you are much. Just dancing nonstop. Even in the second act, you're placed somewhere in the set. Yeah. I mean, you're basically a part of the set, you know, a living part of the set. But yeah. you, um, I mean, some people got really lucky and they could sort of be in the tunnel and they could, you know, they could probably even take a nap. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, I was usually on the tire. I think I spent a lot of the second act kind of on the tire or right in front of the uh, car trunk, pretty visible. Well, and you're white. I mean, that was the thing. Yeah. You can't you, blend. You, you don't blend was, at all. There was literally no hiding for me. <laughs> my yeah. character which i loved but it was also um a big responsibility and they <laughs> i used to get that note a lot they're like listen you know when everybody's on stage and they're dancing everyone's looking at you because you're the only one that's that solid bright and with the lights on it it just glows and so you there's this a standard uh you yeah. know of execution you've got it you're sort of setting that standard yeah so that was um great because it's easier to actually to be in the front row you have a little bit more space Mm-hmm. Uh, up in the front, which was nice than having to be in the back. But there, you also have the responsibility. Yeah, you're also the front. So. <laughs> you're also in the front. So, uh. Wow. This has been super fun. I love reminiscing. I love hearing different parts. I love the that the the, the line, Grisbell's line, is her year. That's something I have not thought about. So um, that's a fun piece to maybe bring to the future. Makes Maybe I'll, think, I'll be thinking about that for a while, which is not good. I already think about the show an unhealthy amount of time. So, <laughs> well, you know um, what? I think I heard one of your podcasts where somebody was saying doing site-specific cats, and I do think that is a super cool idea on a variety of levels. Like not only to possibly revitalize some sort of declining building or structure or neighborhood or something, but that's sort of that's what's going to the heavy side layer. You're you're bringing this exciting uh, piece of theater to a place that might need a little love. Yeah. And uh, by it's doing like a, that, although it's, you know, there's a lot of challenges with site specific work, but I think that like this show really lends itself to that if you do it. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's a junkyard. So it's like, it's where could junkyard. you build a junkyard somewhere else is, is a fascinating kind of idea of, of doing it. But it, it adds a whole different, as put on your producer hat, yeah, a whole different layer of like, how do you make that work? Um, but it, yeah, there's, 
there's a lot of interesting ways I think to to um, not fully reimagine but tweak the show. Mm-hmm. But I also at the same time, to your point, it's, it's been so successful, it's so revolutionary. That's why they don't tweak it too far. Mm-hmm. Um, so as much as I want an Edwin Drew style different ending each night, like yeah. I'm not sure I'm ever going to get that. I'm going to keep pushing for it. That's my my. It goal. could be, and you know how um, it could be at an after show. You know, like the show's the yeah. show, and then you have a little post production kind of thing. Yeah, where maybe the that the, that I could see that being super fun and um, come out after. And- yeah, the audience chooses. You know that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. It's interesting. What I do love is that it's still there's still conversation about this show, and that people are still iterating it and doing their own take on it. And I think that all of that is just fabulous. Yeah, and and the fans love it still. I get messages. I get messages all the time with like, "Here's this little nugget that you talked about, but you did. Did you know this?" I'm like, "I did not know that. That's awesome." You know, so it's really cool to hear how everyone kind of thinks about it. And there's just so much the the levels and layers of it's been going on in so many countries and so many different places that. There's there are nuances everywhere. I would say that you are never going to run out of people to talk to. There are yeah. So that show ran for so long, and I think because it was such a heavy dance show, you have a little bit more attrition and turnover. Mm -hmm. You know, because not 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 many people can do it for a decade. Although some people did. Yeah. Um, I think including a Victoria. I think one of the Victorias on Broadway did it a really long time. Um, so um. There are a plethora of folks that you could talk to, um, and, you know, that did the German companies or the uh, yep. the Mexican company or yeah. the Paris I, company. I kind of originally said I'll keep doing this while pe- until people will stop talking to me. And then I have, I mean, I don't know when this one's going to come out, but I, as of today, I have, I think, six extra recorded. So like that aren't even out yet. So I, and I have three more recording this weekend. So there are endless amounts of people that want to, and thankfully people are enjoying this and like to have this conversation and it's been fun. So I will keep recording until people do not want to record with me anymore, but I have a feeling that'll be a long time. Now and forever. Now and forever. So, <laughs> well, I love talking to you about it. It's, it's, it's been a while, so but um, it was a big, it was a big part of my life. I love the piece. And again, I love that there's still conversation about it and still people, it's still out there and on tour i think is it still out on tour just finished tour um i don't know if it's going back out but it mm-hmm. is on royal caribbean still currently oh um, that's right yeah fantastic taiwan uh asia tour just finished but i don't know if they're going back out it was i mean there's always production so it's i think there was an um vienna was on for a while there was an international tour for a while i always just assume that i'm gonna see people holding their contract with the books soon of like here's the next tour going out um but i think it's currently running at least two places right that's now that's fantastic and i know it's regional it's done regionally now mm-hmm. which took a long time for it to get there i've actually seen it in high schools as yeah well. there's a junior production there's a junior um, production okay that i i only know because i'm from indiana and they're doing it either end of this year early next year for two nights and i'm like i, I tell me more like what is, how do you do a junior pro- like, i don't know anything about that so trying to understand a little bit more about what even that looks like Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's just, I mean, again, endless, endless uh, versions of this. Endless versions. You've got lots of people to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. This was super fun. Uh, so thanks for being here. Oh, I, I had a blast. Thank you so much for asking. And thanks everyone else for listening to this episode of The Wrong Cat Died, the podcast breakdown of the cast catastrophe. To follow along, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anyone else listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and threads at The Wrong Cat Died, or check out our website, theroncatdied.com. Thank you.
Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.